Well, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And today, the plan is, is to conclude our study of 1 Peter. But we'll see how that goes. Because there is actually a lot of information still left to cover. But today we're picking up at verse 8 and carrying it down to verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 8 through 14. This has been a rich study as we've been going through this letter, as we've been learning all the facets of persecution and suffering and how that affects our lives and why God uses suffering in our life. But notice here as he begins at verse 8 with these final words, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Well, if you'll notice from hearing that, that Peter has returned to his theme of suffering as he brings this letter to a conclusion. But as he does this, he gives us three commands that we need to pay attention to, and those three commands are given to us by four exhortations that cover this section of Scripture. It's a wonderful thing that he does this, and how he does this, we'll see in verse 10, of a wonderful reminder that you and I need to hold on to when we are suffering, when we are more specifically being persecuted uh, for our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, we've been learning that suffering is the will of God. You know, Paul has echoed these same words over in Philippians 1, 29 and 30, where he said, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And the very conflict that he experienced was because people responding to the gospel. You either have one or two responses. You accept it, receive it, believe it, embrace it, or you reject it. And in your rejection, some people become very hostile. And we see so many examples of that, and Paul experienced that for sure, and he references that very often. And we also have to keep in mind that since persecution is a reality for all the followers of Christ, none of us are exempt from it. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are subject to being persecuted for your faith in Christ. Now, you may have went... uh, to this point, your whole Christian life and have never suffered persecution for your faith. And it's not because you're not talking to people about Jesus. You just haven't had that kind of response. And praise the Lord that you haven't experienced some form of persecution. But we do experience it. And it may happen at some other time in your life, or it may happen today. It may happen tomorrow. We live in a different culture Our culture has changed just in the last two years with this COVID thing. And people have become actually more hostile to truth. They don't want to hear truth. They want to believe lies. And so it makes what we have to say very important, even more important, because we are those who hold the truth. We have the truth to give them. Now, Peter has also began this letter by talking about the purpose of suffering, and I want to remind you of this, and that's in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what he is talking about rejoicing is rejoicing in is the fact that you are kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. But for now, we're distressed by various trials, right? We all go through trials. James 1, verses 1 through 12, is on the entire subject of trials. And then he talks about what happens when you fail the trial. That's verses 13 through 18. But here Peter says that there is a form of distress that comes from trials. That is so true. But he also says the proof of your faith. These trials aid us in self-examination. Our faith is subject to testing. And we've been seeing that all throughout this letter. Well, as we begin to look at this, there are some final exhortations, final words of action that Peter wants his readers to engage themselves in. If you remember, he is writing to the church And this church was suffering during the time of Nero. And Nero was a very wicked ruler of Rome, just as they had many wicked rulers. But he was one who set the city on fire because he wanted to rebuild the city. And people began to turn on him, and so he blamed it on the Christians. Well, they were already experiencing some form of persecution. This just escalated it to the point to where the bodies of Christians would be impaled on poles and they would be there to light his garden parties. That would be one party I wouldn't want to attend to see all of that. How about you? So what do you say as you're closing out a letter like this? What do you say in terms of words of encouragement to a suffering church? I mean, again, he's, he's approached this from so many different angles I mean, we have been dealing with this subject the entire time. What else can you say? Well, look at verse 8. He begins with, be sober. Be sober. Now, this is not the first time Peter has said this. He said it in chapter 1 and verse 13. He said it in chapter 4 and verse 7. This is the Greek word nepho. Nepho is a command as it's used right here. It occurs six times in the New Testament. Three of those six times are right here in 1 Peter. The word meant in classical Greek, one who was completely unaffected by wine. That is, one who avoided intoxication. And later, it came to be known as a sober matter or a manner of living. That's demonstrated by a wonderful virtue that you get when you're filled with the Spirit. You know what it is? Self-control. Do you remember Galatians 5, 22 and 23 that gives us the list of the fruit of the Spirit? And by the way, I remind you it's fruit and not fruits, plural. It's one fruit. It's a multicolored fruit, if you want to say that, a multi-fruited fruit, <laughs> if you want to say it that way. But when you're filled with the Spirit, you get all of it. You don't get just one or two. You get it all. See why it's important that we're filled with the Spirit? And one of those is self-control. So Peter is calling them for some balance. He's calling for balance in their disposition, balance in their thought life, balance in their actions, their responses. This is talking about steadfastness, endurance, self-control, clarity of mind, a moral decisiveness. This is what each believer needs to give themselves to. And when you do this, you have to deny some things. And one of those things you have to deny is worldly pleasures. This allows you to be alert, able to guard yourself against the attacks of the enemy. It makes you ready to receive the revelation of Christ. 
But we need to keep this in mind, too, that if you're the one that has not really experienced a lot of trouble in your life for your faith, then hear the words of Spurgeon when he says this. He says, when we think we have no occasion for our sword, we begin to unbuckle it from our side. We strip off our armor piece by piece, and then it is that we become most exposed to the attacks of our enemy. In Ephesians 6, 10 and following, when it talks about the armor of God, it talks about putting it on and leaving it on. Don't take it off. Don't think that just because you're not experiencing some kind of trouble right now for your faith, that you can just take it all off. So we have to make sure that we're sober-minded. Notice the second thing he says, be alert. And this is really a command which is the second one, to wake up. To wake up is a call to, a, to be wakefully active, both morally and spiritually. This is talking about a spiritual alertness. It has an emphasis on one's focus of attention. This is a call to be alert. Alert against what? Well, against the assaults of sin and the assaults of Satan. So those are two reasons that you need to be this way. But let me give them to you again. And the second one will be a little different than I just mentioned. The first one is, is because of the adversary, the devil. The devil is a real angelic creature who sinned. And who led our first parents, Adam and Eve, into sin. Particularly Eve. But he is a real creature. Some people don't believe in the fact that there is really a devil. The Bible speaks of it. Jesus spoke of it many times. But let me give you some of the things the Bible says about the devil. First of all, he was originally called the star of the morning, the star of dawn in Isaiah 14, 12. In Ezekiel 28, which also gives us information about him, tells us that he was the seal of perfection. He was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. It tells us in Ezekiel 28, 13, that he was in the garden of God, which is Eden. It tells us in verse 14 that he was anointed cherub. It also tells us, and this is a phrase for heaven, he was on the mountain of God. In his original creation, this is what he was like. And it's amazing that, you know, you have people that try to depict pictures of him and, and they put a creature with pointed horns and a pointed tail and a pitchfork and all of this kind of stuff. You know, I don't think that that depicts him at all because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that he appears as an angel of light. He appears in a way that's deceptive because that's, his nature. He's deceptive. He's cunning. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's an accuser. So he's not going to present himself to you in some kind of frightful way or present himself to you in a way that you would know it's him. He works by stealth. That's amazing about our stealth bomber of how quiet it is. And just think of the activity here when he talks about a lion. That's not quiet, but we'll see where the stealth comes in. Ezekiel 28, 15 tells us that the devil was blameless in his ways from the day he was created until unrighteousness was found in him. We don't know where this unrighteousness came from other than the fact that it says it was in him. So God initially judged him for this. Paul references this in 1 Timothy 3.6 when he talks about you shouldn't have a new convert as a pastor because they would be lifted up with pride or conceit and fall under the same condemnation as the devil. We know from Isaiah 14 that that certainly was pride being exhibited when he gave the five I wills. Listen to what he said, Isaiah 14.13, But you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven... I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and the stars of God, according to Job, tells us that that's referring to the angels. 
So he's going to raise himself above the angels. He's going to sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And many understand that is to be the Shekinah glory of God. And I will make myself like the Most High. That was his desire. He wanted to be like God. In fact, we could even take it a step further, because this is really where false teachers fall in as well, is they don't want to just be like God, they want to dethrone God. People today would rather that God didn't exist at all, that there was no God. Ezekiel 28, 17 states that your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And God says, I will cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Even verse 16 says, I've cast you as profane from the mountain of God. Now that happened after he sinned. And God also promises in the future that he will be thrust down to the recesses of the pit, and I believe that that has a, a reference to Revelation chapter 20. See, when Jesus comes back, He will cast the beast and the false prophet, according to Revelation 19.20, alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. And then, it says in chapter 20 and verse 1, He will send an angel who has the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit, he will take hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he will bound him for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20 and verse 7 tells us that he will be released from his prison. And it says, He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And all God's people should shout hallelujah, amen to that. This is the fate of our accuser. The Bible refers to him as our adversary. You see that in verse 8. Your adversary. And that means he's one who accuses. Specifically accuses us before the court of God. He did that with Job. He does that with all of God's people in one form or another. Let me show you how he did this to Job. Let me have you to turn to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, and just look at verse 6 and following. First five verses tells us a little bit about Job, what kind of man he was. It tells us about his possessions and about his family. It says in verse 6, There was a day when the sons of God, that is the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking about around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. God's saying this about him. Amazing words. And then Satan answered, and here's where the accusations come in. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. That's what our enemy does. He accuses us before God. And then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. See, anything that happens in our life has to happen only because God has allowed it to happen. Just in the case here with Job, he allowed Satan to test him. 
Now go to chapter 2. He did it again. In chapter 2, verses 1 and following. It says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And then Satan answered the Lord, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And by the way, the roaming and the walking shows that he is not omnipresent, that he can be everywhere at the same time. God is the only one that can be omnipresent. Satan is not. You know, if we're in two geographical locations, (laughs) he can't be messing with you and messing with me too. But he has a lot of fallen angels too. Satan answered the Lord, from roaming and walking around on the earth. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. You know, there have been, all throughout history, faithful followers of Christ that have experienced an enormous amount of torture at the hands of their persecutors. You know, we read about Joseph and his life and what he went through with his brothers and and how God elevated him. But if you read in other places in the New Testament, or rather in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms, it talks about how that he was chained he was put in fetters. His, beat were feet, uh, his feet were beaten. Uh, he did go through a amount of trial and suffering. Two years in prison, forgotten about, left there. But God was with him. And folks, that's what you and I have to understand, and that God is with us when we suffer. We're not alone. But as you see in these two examples here with Job, uh, he is... Relentless in his accusations. He is the accuser of the brethren. And it says in Revelation 12.10, as that phrase, accuser of the brethren, is used, it says he is the one who accuses them before our God day and night. That's why we need to be sober and alert. We have an adversary, the devil. And here's the second reason why you need to be that is because our adversary is just like a lion hunting its prey. Here he's described as a roaring lion. Anybody here visit Caddyshack Ranch? Not far from here. About 35 cats they have down there. I used to live three houses from them. Lived there for 29 years. We could hear them all the time. But not just at any time. You know when you would hear them? Feeding time. That's when you would hear them. Because we'd be out there feeding too. Same time, we would hear the roaring of the lions. You have to understand about a lion, and I've watched some videos, and for some reason I've got this crazy thing about watching these hunting and praying kind of videos of the animals. It's, It's very fascinating to me to watch how they operate. You know, we live on a large piece of land, and I tell my boys all the time when you walk to certain areas, you've got to be alert. You don't know what you're going to walk up on, and uh, just need to be prepared. A lion will stalk its prey from about 30 to 40 yards, and he's extremely quiet. He's stealth, and he quietly creeps up. And then when he's close enough, you know what he does? He lets out a mighty roar. Know why he does that? Because it confuses the animal. It strikes fear into them. And they can't think. They're paralyzed with fear. They freeze. They're trapped. And they're caught. And by the way, it's interesting when you watch lions catch prey. They work as a team. They'll use the lionesses and they will maneuver their prey. And they will turn them in directions they, they, they need them to turn into for the time of the kill. 
but they work together. And animals that don't work together trying to take down larger animals are usually unsuccessful, but lions are very crafty at this. So it's very interesting that Peter would use this as an illustration for us because if you think about it, the devil does prowl his territory. He seeks after those who get along, and that's what happens uh, when they go after their prey. They want to go after the weak. They go after the young, the newborns. They go after those that separate themselves from the rest of the herd because they don't have that protection now. And, and see, that gives us all kinds of metaphors in our life as believers. We don't want to get out there and separate ourselves from the church and get out from under the protection of the church because we become prey. But that's what he does. And he does it to believers, and he sneaks up on them, and he instills fear, and he causes confusion, and he attacks you know the scripture tells us how important it is for thinking on the right things? Philippians 4.8 Think on things that are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good repute and things that are praiseworthy. That's where our thoughts are to be. But you know where Satan attacks you to is in your thought life. And boy do we have so many things out there to hinder our thought life. If it's not billboards, and you don't see them as much anymore, a lot of them have been taken down, but the Internet has so much there. We have all these devices. So what does he say here? He says, Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The word devour literally means to drink down, to swallow, to swallow up completely. Linsky says Peter may have had in mind a bloody bath. Spurgeon says Satan can never be content till he sees the believer utterly devoured. He would rend him in pieces and break his bones and utterly destroy him if he could. Do not therefore indulge the thought that the main purpose of Satan is to make you miserable. He is pleased with that, but that is not his ultimate end. Sometimes he may even make you happy, for he has dainty poisons, sweet to the taste, that he administers to God's people. If he feels that our destruction can be more readily achieved by sweets than by bitters, he certainly would prefer that which would best affect his end. I was reading one time from uh, Dwight Pentecost who talked about one of the methods of Satan with pastors is to deceive the pastor. And if he could deceive the pastor or get the pastor to preach false doctrine, then he doesn't have to go and work on everybody else. The pastor did it by putting out their false doctrine, false teaching for the people to hear. Martin Luther adds to this, he does not pass before your eyes when you are armed against him, but looks out before and behind you, within and without, where he may attack you. If he now meets you here, he will quickly return there and attack you in another place. He changes from one side to the other and employs every kind of cunning and art that he may bring you to fall. And if you are well prepared in one place, he will quickly fall in upon another and if he cannot overthrow you there, then he assaults you somewhere else. And so never gives it up, but goes round and around and leaves no rest to anyone. If we then are fools and do not regard it, but go on and take no heed, then he has as a good reason to seize upon us. And as I have been saying in this letter, there has been one trial after another in forms of persecution and suffering that he has used throughout this letter that Peter has addressed. James does the same thing in James chapter 1. Take a minute and turn with me there to James chapter 1. James tells us that trials are come in various ways. They're various kinds of trials. Tells us that they are sent for the purpose of testing 
verse 3, your faith, and also for producing endurance. And if you're not willing to let endurance have its perfect result, uh, then you're going to remain in a state of immaturity. You're going to remain in a state to where you lack what you need. But he does tell us in verse 5, if you're lacking the wisdom, and I believe specifically the wisdom is talking about what you need as you go through these trials. And by the way, trial here is also suffering because if the background of this is by the author, who is James, the Lord's half-brother, you go all the way back to Acts chapter 8 when the persecution was picking up on the early church. James was part of the church. The congregation that was scattered all throughout Palestine was the first church. And so James writes even here in explaining that what they were experiencing was persecution. But he tells it to us in the terms of trials. Trials take on all kinds of forms. Trials come in various ways. They come at different times. You can't pinpoint when they're going to come. You can't pinpoint the, the intensity of those trials. But our response is always to be the same when we experience them. Number one, we are to count it all joy when we go through them. You say, well, how can I count it all joy? Well, you count it all joy based upon what you know. And what do you know? You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, perseverance. You know that this trial, for however long you're going to go through it, is going to produce endurance. It's going to make your faith stronger. Or it's going to reveal that you don't have true saving faith. You have dead, demonic faith. It's going to drive you to prayer. Verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So it's going to drive you to God. and It's going to drive you to pray. It's going to drive you to specifically ask God for the wisdom that you need as you go through this trial But beloved, if you fail the trial, then guess what happens? James addresses that too. It's going to turn into a temptation. That's all temptations are most of the time is a failure at the trial. And I'm talking about when you give in to it. So everything that goes on in our life is either a trial or a temptation. It's a test. And you and I could pass tests. Might not be able to pass some of them in school, but <laughs> these tests of life, we can pass because you have God with you. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Flip Wilson used to say, years ago, the devil made me do it. James says, you made yourself do it. You're drawn away by your own lust, your own desires. That's a passion that he's talking about. It's the word epithemia, and it's referring to a strong passion. So you've got to make sure that you have your, have your passions in the right place. And you deal with these vices in your life as they come. And I believe that that's why when you look at the next thing that Peter says, and he tells us this about the devil, you have to be firm. Go back to James, or 1 Peter, rather, 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 5, 9. You're sober, you're alert, you're aware of the devil seeking someone to devour. You're aware of his stealth, his devices, his deception, his cunningness. 
But there's something that you have to do here. You've got to be firm. And being firm means that you have to resist Him. But resist Him firm in your faith, verse 9 says. See, a lot of people believe that the response to Satan is to start talking to him. Start shouting things at him. Start binding him, whatever that means. That's not what it says here. It says to resist. By the way, that's the third command. You have to resist him. And to resist him means to oppose him. To withstand him. To stand up against him. Or in the words of Ephesians 4.27, not to give the devil an opportunity. James uses the same phrase about resisting, but he tells us what you've got to do to resist, and he says you have to submit therefore to God, James 4.7. In resisting Him and submitting yourself to God, you've got to take it one more step. And that is you need to know the Scripture. Uh, look with me at Matthew 4 for just a minute. We have an example here of Jesus being tempted by Satan. I want you to notice his responses every time he's tempted. Notice what he did. It says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. I find that amazing. <laughs> 40 days and 40 nights, and then you're hungry? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. By the way, it's not if in the Greek, it's since. The devil or the demons cannot deny the reality of who Jesus is, and they never did. James says, you believe in God, the devils believe but tremble. They know that Jesus is God, and they tremble at him. And even when they, like in the... Uh, the man that was possessed with demons, the demoniac at Gadara, you remember the demons asked Jesus, have you come to torment us before our time? And they asked for permission to, to go down to the pigs and to be cast into the pigs. And he gave them permission. They know who he is and they understand his authority. And so it, it reads this way, since you are the son of God. And notice where the point of attack always happens in our moments of weakness. And what would appear as a weakness would be this issue of hunger. Now, I know what it's like to be hungry just like you do. And I'm on one of those really weird special diets. And so it really affects me in a really hard way. And I found out what it's like when you don't follow certain things that you're supposed to follow. And there are consequences to that, yes. But I also know what it's like to give up on it. And just do what you want to do. And again, you suffer the consequences of those decisions. And when you're hungry, you know, it's just like, forget the diet. Just give me something, you know. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He knew the tempter. And he knew that the tempter was going to tempt him. He went into the wilderness for this purpose, as verse 1 says. But notice how he answered. He answered with the Word of God. This is Deuteronomy 8.3, found in verse 4. It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Guess what? Doesn't say it, but we see it here. Devil is not doing anything now, right? He left. Resist him. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. James 4 7. And then it says in verse 6, or verse 5, then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, Since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now here's the devil trying to quote Scripture, though he 
misquotes Scripture. But he'll do whatever he can for his own purposes to accomplish his own means. And Jesus again responds in verse 7. Now he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where's the devil now? He's gone. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And again, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. Three times the devil tempted him. Three times he was unsuccessful. Three times Jesus responded with Scripture. When I was involved in a small house church, about a year after I became a believer, I was with a lot of young men. I was a young man as well. And we young men have all kinds of passions that we have to deal with. And one of the things that we all did together was memorize Scripture. And we all did the same scripture together so we could hold each other accountable. And guess which scripture we chose? Romans chapter 6. You get some time, read Romans 6. Not now, but read it later. And that's a wonderful chapter that explains to you and me the relationship that we have with sin. And it even tells us how we are to respond to sin. So it's a wonderful chapter. And what we used to do, and by the way, we memorized the entire chapter, 23 verses. And what we would do, encourage each other to do, that when you were tempted, start quoting Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And you just keep quoting, keep quoting the Scripture. You know what, by time, in my personal experience of that, by the time I got down to verse 5 or 6, the appeal of that temptation was gone, regardless of what it was. And so what I used to do is I would review Romans 6 all the time. And I worked with a couple of the guys that were in the little house church, and we would encourage each other to take these verses and write them down on three by five index cards. We all had to wear dress clothes at our job. You'd stick those cards in your pocket, and if you have a free moment, you just pull the card out and you go over it. Do it in between customers. You know, do it at lunchtime. And just go over the scripture. Go over it when you're driving. Go over it when you're when you're by yourself, go over it when you're with other people. Get other people to, to help you. And it's very important when you memorize Scripture that you do it word for word. Get the words right. This is God's Word. It's not the Word of man. This is the Word of God. So memorize every single word. No paraphrasing. And that's what we would do. When I, about eight years ago, started working at a Christian school... They wanted me, along with teaching the Bible, is to get the kids to memorize Scripture. Well, we started out the way everybody does and do rote memory and put things on the board and put blanks in there, and we try to fill in, you know. Found out after a while that there is a more effective way, especially in the life of young people, and you know what it is? It's what we've been doing in here. It's music. Music is very powerful. You listen to music, or I listen to music, um, a lot. <laughs> you get in your car, well, sometimes the first thing goes on. Boom, radio comes on. If you're like me, I like to listen to things through my phone, sermons, listen to uh, Q&As uh, from conferences. Or I, I love to listen to these things, and I love to do it when I'm driving, and especially if I'm alone, then that occupies my mind and my time. And um, Try to do it with my family. I found out years ago I can't do this when we're on a trip because where my wife would be over there sleeping, I would turn on a sermon while she's sleeping so I can listen to it while I'm driving. And what happens is she wakes up and she starts talking to me. So I'd have to click the sermon off because I couldn't listen to the sermon and talk to her. 
So maybe that was kind of a thing at work to get her to talk to me and not sleep so I wouldn't fall asleep while I was driving. But either way, the point is is that you're wanting to saturate your mind with Scripture. That's so important. That's the most important activity you and I have. Because if you will saturate your mind with Scripture, it will help you in dealing with trials and temptations. It will help you with dealing with doubt and confusion and fear. And you remember what Paul said to Timothy? God did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. You want to know what it, Philippians 4, 8 means about thinking on things that are true and honest and just and pure and loving and so forth? Is to think on the Scriptures. You want to know how to deal with issues in your life? Problems that come up? It's with the Scriptures. You know, there's a renewal to Nuthetic counseling going on in a lot of churches, and I appreciate that because Nuthetic counseling uses the Scripture. To counsel with. That's the only way to counsel anybody. I'm not interested in my opinion. I'm interested in what God has to say. See, beloved, Jesus did right here, in, right before our eyes, and it's right here in print what you and I should be doing. He quoted Scripture, which means he memorized it. That's what I believe is meant in Ephesians 6, 11 to 13, when Paul tells them to put their armor on. We're not talking about literal armor, but the armor is the Word of God. In fact, the only offensive weapon in the list is the Scripture. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This was not the broad sword that was about four feet long. This was the small dagger that was used in hand-to-hand combat. It was called a rhema. And even in Romans 10, 13, when it talks about faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, it's talking about the rhema. It's talking about specific speeches about Christ. What is the specific speech about Christ that brings about faith? It is the gospel. So it's not like you tell somebody so that they would have faith in Christ to read through just anywhere in the Bible. They need to hear the gospel, the gospel of Christ. So he says here that you have to resist him. And you have to do this firm in your faith. And I believe what he's saying here, when you're standing firm, you're not only... Resisting the devil, but you're trusting God. There's a trust that's taking place right here as you resist the devil. This is having a a deep root in the content of the Christian faith because he talks about here firm in your faith. We're talking about doctrine now. People want to say doctrine divides. Yes, it does divide. It divides the truth from the error. It divides truth from false. And so it's very important that we study doctrine. And doctrine is teaching. And here it has to do with God's revealed truth. And so our goal is to master the teaching of the Word of God so that it would provide a solid foundation and so that it would empower us to resist the enemy. And and I agree with MacArthur. This is not done with special formulas. This is not done with words that are directed at demons. This is not done by remaining, uh, you know, just shouting things at him. Now, this comes by remaining firm in the Christian faith. And as you know sound doctrine, as you obey God's truth... Satan is withstood. You know, we talk about, you know, I hear people say, you know, I bind you, Satan. First of all, quit talking to Satan. Some people spend more time talking to the enemy than they do talking to God. You don't need to talk to him. And you don't need to shout out some kind of magical formula saying that you bind him. 
You know what? Uh, he is a very powerful creature. And God has not given you that authority to do that. That authority was delegated only to a few in the New Testament. You can't just say that every single disciple had this ability to do this because we don't have examples of that. And it couldn't be just used at your whim, even when it came to the gift of healing. We knew Paul had that gift. And why didn't he just go over there and put his hands on Timothy and heal him? No, he tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. So that tells me right there that you couldn't just use any of these spiritual gifts for your own personal edification or your own personal uh, choice. They all have a purpose, yes, but it is not personal. It's corporate. So as Satan tempts you, as Satan attacks you, you've got to know that this is something that you're not alone in. Look at what he says in the rest of verse 9. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You know, that helps. But we don't remember that, do we? You know, when you're depressed, you think, you think you're the only person on the planet, number one, that's depressed, or number two, that is experiencing what is causing your depression. And you don't know how to get out of it. The psalmist would talk to himself and remind himself about God and his hope in God. Jesus told his disciples, and here's one of the things they needed to remember, that in this world, they would have trouble. You're going to have it. Just remember this. When it comes, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have thalipsis. You're going to have pressure. But you've got to take courage. And our courage is not in us and our abilities. Our courage is in Christ and what He has done. Because He says there in John 16, 33, I have overcome the world. Our peace comes from Him. Our joy comes from Him. That's why when James says count it all joy, he's not out of his mind or speaking something that you and I can't do or they couldn't do, or something that's unattainable. If you truly trust God, you can have all joy. Because you know that God is in control of your life. You know that God is sovereign. See, the other thing when you look at verse 9, when he says, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, that's also echoing 1 Corinthians 10.13, which says this, No trial or temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. What you're going through is something common. Everyone experiences temptation. Everyone experiences trials. In fact, by the way, the word that he uses there that's translated temptation in the first part of the verse is parosmos, and it's the word for trials. So it should be translated trials, not parazo, which is temptation. But he uses both words. So there's no trial that has overtaken you, but only those that are common to man. And what's to say in the next part of the verse? God is, say it with me, faithful. He's faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may endure it. And I heard, actually it was MacArthur say this one time, that if you, in your trials, in your trouble, say to God, I cannot endure this anymore, then you have just called God a liar. Because what you're saying is that He has given you more than you can endure. God knows how much we can handle. Perfectly knows what we can handle. 
You and I just don't know until we're in those situations. Some situations, we don't know how we're going to react until we're there. I know that we have a, a desire to act in a certain way, but you don't know what's going to happen until you're in that situation. Chuck Swindoll says this, Apart from God's help, we would be devoured by the devil. In God's strength, however, we can resist him and stand firm against him. As discussed elsewhere in the Bible, Satan is a defeated foe. The Lord Jesus Christ defeated him at Calvary. Proof of that is the open tomb. Christ arose triumphantly over sin and Satan and over death. The finished work of Christ is our source of victory over every snare of Satan. Therefore, we need to claim victory by faith. And not just with our lips, but our heart. Walking in obedience, which acts as a shield against the devil's deceitful slings and arrows. In other words, if you claim victory with your lips and practice sin with your life, you will not experience victory. Faith that works is faith that obeys, and spirit-enabled obedience will give us victory over our defeated foe. Never should a believer give the devil an opportunity. In the immediate context of this command, anger, lying, stealing, and unwholesome talk among Christians are discussed, thereby suggesting that through these sins, Satan is given opportunity to do his dirty work. So we have to make sure that we are alert and watchful for his devices. We're making sure that we're alert and watchful when it comes to our sin. We're making sure that we're not giving in to those things like lying and stealing and unwholesome talk. I was talking to a, a believer just the other day, and, and it took me back as I was talking to him because he's praising the Lord with one side of his mouth and the other side of his mouth he's cussing a lot. And I was just thrown back by that. And I remember I had another guy, a believer, and he was doing some work for me, and he was doing the same thing. And I remember after a few times of this, I was like, I, I just can't stomach this, so I said something. I said, it, it doesn't make sense, the language that you're using. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.29, to let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good for edification. There's no edification in the world's language. And I'm talking about the filthy language, by the way. And there's terms that they're using now that they didn't use uh, so much, but they're everywhere now. And you need to watch out for that for your kids and grandkids, you know? Is this there? And even the world knows it's bad language. You start talking that way to uh, someone in authority. You talk that way to, uh, again, to people that have those avenues of authority, then you're going to find some resistance to it. You might even find yourself being charged with indecent language. I've seen it happen too. Not in my life, praise the Lord. <laughs> I used to work on a loading dock when the Lord saved me. And I found it very interesting that that was the place the Lord used to clean my mouth up. I was around a bunch of truckers all the time. And majority of them have a trashy mouth. And I worked with guys on the dock that were just like that. And so it took a lot of scripture memory, a lot of listening to the word to, to finally cut that off in my life. It took me about three months after I became a believer to finally end that part of my life. For some reason, the Lord left that for me to work on, and he did, and I did. That's not my language. My kids have never heard me talk like that. My older kids have never heard me talk like that. Because that's not my mouth anymore. Uh, is there a potential for it? Absolutely. Absolutely. We all have the propensity for evil. The question is, is are we going to give in to it? The question is, are we going to walk by the Spirit? And that's what we're charged with, to walk by the Spirit. 
Now, as I said when we started today, we were going to finish 1 Peter, but I have much more to say, so I'm going to cut it off right here so we can pick up verse 10 next time, next week. And also because I don't want to rush our time in the Lord's Supper. I don't want it to be seen as a tack-on in our life because it's not that. And we're told that each time we do this, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And that's important. Because the Lord hasn't come back yet. And we talk about His return. We talk about His coming. We long for His return. But until then, we need to be reminded about what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and me. And in our reminder of this, we have to examine ourselves to see if there's some sin that we're entertaining, sin that we're not you know, confessing and repenting of, or even go further if we're proclaiming Christ as our Lord and Savior, but there's no evidence of that in our life. We're not living for Christ. So these things we need to pay attention to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about examining yourself so that you don't take of the cup or the bread in an unworthy manner. And an unworthy manner is basically, and what was going on in this church, is you had the rich that were coming to these love feasts. The love feast and the Lord's Supper were done together. And so they would come together for these love feasts, you know, these lunches that they were doing. And the rich were not considering the poor, and they were hoarding the food. And on top of that, they were coming and getting drunk at these love feasts. And then they would come to the Lord's table and try to have communion with the Lord. And Paul said, nope, that ain't going to happen. And so what eventually happened was a separation of the Lord's Supper from the love feast. Just to preserve the sanctity and the holiness of the Lord's Supper. Now, we talk about the Lord's Supper. This is a memorial. This is something that we're remembering that the Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. This is not the literal blood and body of Jesus. We don't believe in transubstantiation. Don't believe what the Catholics believe, that this becomes this. We also don't believe what Lutherans believe, that there's some kind of grace that's imparted when you partake of the cup and the bread. No, we take the memorial view because we get the memorial view based upon what he said. He said, do this in remembrance of me. That's a memorial. And so that's why we do it that way. And we seek to do it often, and maybe not often enough, but we do it often so that we're reminded. You know, we come in here and we're in a safe haven from the world. You know, this is our shelter for you. This is our refuge. You know, we've been in the world all week and we've been mingling with unbelievers all week. And sometimes we walk in and we just go, I'm finally around my people. (laughs) People that have the same hunger and passion that I have, that love Jesus and want others to love Jesus too. And so we get that encouragement from each other and we get reminded that we have a job on us every time we're away from here, and that is to proclaim the gospel. And so as we have this opportunity to share in the Lord's table at this time, I'm going to ask Tyler if he would come and help me. And uh, ask my brother Dwayne, you want to come help me too? And uh, then you all both can pass out the elements. But before we do this, we're going to pray together and uh, just... Ask the Lord to point out anything in your heart, and He's probably already done that. If there's some things that you haven't dealt with and you you need to deal with, deal with it now. And don't say, I can't take of the Lord's table because I'm unworthy and I've been dealing with this. No, the Bible says to do this, and that is a command. Jesus is commanding them to do this. So that means it forces you to deal with whatever it is that's unworthy in your life. And it's trusting in Christ, right? Trusting in His forgiveness. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Praise the Lord. And in 1 John 2, 1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, our lawyer in defense that comes and pleads on our behalf. And he doesn't say he's not guilty. He says, I have paid that penalty for that sin. So you can trust in his forgiveness. And when he paid for your sins, he paid for all of them. And all of our sins were future when it came to the cross, right? He paid for every one of them. There's no sin left to be paid for. He did it. So let's 